Well, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. We'll look at this entire chapter today. Page 184, if you're using the Pew Bible. And let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Last chapter, we had the battle, the second battle of Ai, where the Israelites were successful in conquering Ai, and then at the end of the chapter, a covenant renewal ceremony, and now we come to the next trial in the life of the children of Israel. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Well, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to, go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. 
Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Well, Reese's peanut butter cups are my favorite chocolate candy. Don't buy me any. I know y'all are so generous. You'll want to give me a treat, but I'm trying to lose weight and they're not helpful in that endeavor, especially when I eat a whole package of them. (laughs) Apparently they are the most popular candy bar in America and it's not close. Second place is way behind Reese's. So I'm not the only person that has these thoughts. Well, in the 1970s and 1980s, many of you will remember uh, the commercials for Reese's peanut butter cups. And it was, it was a lot of different scenarios, but, but, the, but it was the same basic uh, plan, same basic uh, story that was being told in this commercial. Uh, you had one person uh, eating chocolate, another person was eating peanut butter, and somehow or another, they end up bumping into one another. And the one person would say, hey, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. And the other person would say, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. And then they would both try the combination and they would proclaim how great it tasted. Then the announcer would say, two great tastes that taste great together. Reese's peanut butter cups. Well, in those commercials, the chocolate and the peanut butter come together by accident, but end up tasting great, as is testimony by $3 billion worth of sales in America. Well, and that's just per year. Not overall, but per year since the 1920s. Well, real life is not trivial like a candy bar commercial. Life is certainly filled with accidents, but also mistakes, sins, and outright evil. Sometimes the brokenness, decay, and the curse that was placed on the world, uh, this sinful world in which we live, it invades your life. Bad things happen. And sometimes it's your fault, but sometimes it's not. For example, the person who smokes two packs a day for decades, well, when he gets lung cancer, it's no surprise. It's a consequence of his actions. But then there are people like my brother who never smoked a day in his life and he got lung cancer. Bad things happen to us in this world, sometimes by our own fault, sometimes not. But for the Christian, we have the confidence of Romans 8:28. Those who love God, all things, even the bad things, work together 
for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What a great encouragement that verse is to so many people. It's such a favorite verse of so many for good reason. We all experience bad things, but we have the confidence that this verse gives us that the Lord is in control and he will use even these bad things for our good. Like Joseph, whose brother sold him into slavery, then he was falsely accused as he served in the house of Potiphar and he was thrown into prison, into a dungeon to rot away. But eventually he rose to become second in command in Egypt and God used him to preserve the people of Israel, his own people, the very people that he sold into slavery, he ends up saving and bringing into Egypt uh, during the time of Fathom. And at the end of that story, that account of Joseph in Genesis, when, when his brothers are there before him, uh, they're worried that, that Joseph's going to get revenge on them. Joseph says to them this statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph believed Romans 8.28. He lived it out before Romans 8.28 was ever written. You meant it for evil. You did something wicked by selling me into slavery, but God turned it into a good thing that I'm in this position now to be able to save you, your families, and the future generations of Israel. Well, the passage before us is the same kind of example We have the bad, here Israel, being duped by these Gibeonites who were supposed to be destroyed from the face of the earth. And and they were duped all because they did not consult the Lord, verse 14 tells us. But then, in spite of that, we also have some good results by God's grace that come out of this bad situation. Kenneth Gangle in his commentary says, God takes our mistakes and sins, mixes them with his abundant grace, and creates a wonderful recipe for his glory. Yes, we must often live with negative consequences, but God is bigger than our mistakes and our problems. So I want to encourage you with a few things today. Uh, talk about uh, you know what happens when we make mistakes. What happens when we seemingly do things that really mess our lives up? How do we cope with that? How do we think about that as believers? And and we, and there and then again we're going to talk a little bit to unbelievers about the Lord's grace and His mercy uh, when all seemed loss. Well, let's look at the Israelites first. The Israelites, the book of Joshua is all about the Israelites coming into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and the promise was repeated through the generations and now it's coming to fruition through Joshua. Joshua is leading them into this promised land. And they have been instructed by God to take the land of Canaan and they were to be an instrument of God's judgment upon the people living there because they were involved in numerous abominations child sacrifice being the, the top of the, the uh, abominations that they did. And they were to completely destroy them as God's agent of judgment. And this destruction of the Canaanites was also to preserve them from being negatively influenced by these peoples. Well, these Gibeonites that we read about today, they were Hivites. If you look at verse 1, Hivites are mentioned. They are a clan of Hivites. Now, Hivites were people descended from one of the sons 
of Canaan, who was, all, who was himself a son of Ham, who was a son of Noah. Remember, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Israelites were descendants of Shem, and that's why you talk about Semitic people when you talk about the Israelites, or we talk about anti-Semitism. It comes from the name Shem, their forefather. Ham was Canaan's father, and Hiv, I guess his name was, the Hivites were descendants of, of, of Canaan's son. Now you remember when Noah got off the ark, he planted a vineyard, and, and he decided to have his own personal party, uh, got drunk on the wine and was laying naked in his tent, and Ham comes in, and we don't know the details of what happened, the scriptures don't tell us, but Ham uh, dishonored his father by pointing out his nakedness. We don't know what else went on there. But Shem and Japheth walk in backwards with a blanket to cover their father. And it says there in Genesis 9:24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, not, not Ham, okay, Ham was the one that, that was the youngest that did the wrong thing, but he said, cursed be Canaan, Ham's son, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And what happens in our story today is a partial fulfillment of that. The sons of Canaan, these Gibeonites, who were Hivites, they become servants of Shem's children, the Israelites. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So this passage, is, this Gibeonite account, is, is all about that prophecy coming true. Well, Back to the Gibeonites and the action in our chapter. The Gibeonites had their heads on the proverbial chopping block. Israelites were coming. They, they knew all about what they had done to Jericho and Ai. And so they hatched this ruse that we've read about here to trick the Israelites into making a covenant or a treaty with them. Now why were the Israelites tricked? Well, verse 14, as I mentioned before, tells us that they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They relied upon their own wisdom. The interesting thing is that they are actually applying God's word. They're trying to be careful to keep God's word in all that they're doing. They, uh, the Gibeonites themselves must have been familiar with the laws of Israel to some extent. They knew that the Lord was giving the land of, of Canaan to the Israelites. They said it. We heard about what, what, uh, what God did through Moses in Egypt. We heard about what happened with, with Og and, and uh, the kings beyond the Jordan. You know, we heard about all this and we know that the Lord is doing something. He's going to give you this land. So they knew that. But they also knew something of the laws of Israel. They must have. Because in Deuteronomy 20, uh, it tells us this. These, this, these Deuteronomy is Moses' instruction to these people who are to take the promised land. He says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city 
All its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord has, your Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destructions. destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So they must have had some knowledge that if they were far away and they weren't inhabitants of the promised land, that Israel was allowed to make peace with them. And so they hatched this plan. You know, they put on their old clothes and their old sandals and their old bags and old bread and old wineskins. And, and they're, you know, they probably threw dust all over themselves and they hadn't showered for a good while and sent those guys to Israel. And, you know, we're from far away. Make a treaty with us. Make a covenant with us. The Israelites are suspicious. They ask some of the right questions. You know, how do we know you're not near, you know, from nearby? Well, they believe the Gibeonites. And they end up applying Deuteronomy 20 to the situation. They take them on as servants. They make a covenant, a treaty with them, and they allow them to be servants. They applied God's word to the situation, but it's the wrong application of the word of God because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did not ask the Lord what to do. It's a good lesson for us. We can know our Bibles in and out, but if we're not praying and seeking the counsel of the Lord, then we can lead ourselves into errors, problems. How important it is that we ask counsel from the Lord in everything. That's why Paul told the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. The Israelites thought they were doing the right thing, but they were not because they didn't ask the Lord. What was the last thing? Now, this is, this is telling for us to think about this, but what was the last thing that the Israelites did before they encountered the Gibeonites? The very last thing that happened in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, they renewed their covenant with the Lord. They, they had this whole ceremony where the terms of their relationship with God was renewed. And so they, they had a kind of a, a meeting where they said, yes, we want to follow the Lord. We want to be faithful to the Lord. And, and they bound themselves to the Lord and remembered his promises and all the blessings and curses that come with either following him or not following him. So this is on their minds. And the next thing they do is they don't seek counsel from the Lord. I find that oddly comforting because we all do the same thing. You know, we may have last week when I preached on that and we took the Lord's Supper, we renewed our covenant with the Lord, but how many of us <laughs> within the next 24 hours sinned against the Lord or didn't call upon the Lord or forgot the Lord and, and sinned against Him? Well, it just illustrates how vulnerable we all are as humans to unfaithfulness. And how great it is that God's mercies are new every morning that we have been reiterating in this service today. 
I love this quote by John Newton because he understands this concept. This is from his letters, and he says this. The, the question that's being asked of him is, how does one walk closely with the Lord? And here's his answer, or at least part of it. To be humble and like a little child, afraid of taking a step alone, and so conscious of snares and dangers around us as to cry to him continually to hold us up that we may be safe is the sure, the infallible, the only secret of walking closely with him. You know, you think of a, a, a small toddler who's just learning to walk and they're constantly reaching for the parent's hand because they know they're going to stumble. You know, they're not sure of themselves yet. That's the way that we need to be. Come, you know, Jesus said to be like little children. That's the people who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. To completely depend upon the Lord. So pray to the Lord. Seek counsel from the Lord constantly. Pray without ceasing, as Paul told us. Um, some people will say this saying, and, and I, I'm going to criticize it, but I, I know what people mean, and I want to clarify that. People say prayer works. Prayer works. And, and, it, and it does, in a sense, if, unless you mean that if I pray enough, and if I get enough people to pray, then God is obligated to give me exactly what I want. That's not true prayer. That's more manipulation. You're just trying to in, uh, somehow make God obligated to give you what you want. I want a Ferrari, and I'm going to pray for it every day, and I'm going to get everybody to pray for it, and God must give me the Ferrari. Now, that's a ridiculous, uh, that's a ridiculous example, right? But God is not obligated to give me a Ferrari, ever. Some people think of prayer that way. And I, I know some of you have said prayer works, and I understand what you're talking about. But what is prayer? Our catechism, Westminster Catechism, says, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's a good summary, but I like, I like the Heidelberg Catechism as well on prayer. And uh, Heidelberg Catechism 117 says, How does God want us to pray so that he will listen to us? First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Praying for a Ferrari is not humble. <laughs> it's very prideful. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord and He has promised us in His Word. Notice that it doesn't say answer our prayer. It says that he will listen to our prayer. He will hear our prayer. Now, I believe God always answers our prayers. He hears our prayers and he answers them, but, if, but not necessarily always yes. You know, God is not obligated to say yes to everything that you ask. Sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait. That's your three options. Yes, no, or wait. And you don't, sometimes don't even, 
cannot discern between no and wait. You know, is God saying no or is he saying wait to this request that I have? So you keep praying about it. If it keeps not happening, then you realize sooner or later that, yes, the, the answer was no. You know, some of you are single. You're praying for a spouse. Is God saying no or is he just saying wait? Well, you don't know. So keep praying. Keep praying and trusting. Whatever God answers, it's the best thing for you. Whatever he says, whether he says yes, no, or wait, that's exactly what you need at that moment. Continue to do, humbly depend upon the Lord. See, that's a lot different than just saying prayer automatically works because I've lifted up my request and had other people lift it up and God is obligated to do what I want. That's not humble. That's not relying upon the Lord. That's manipulating the Lord. That's trying to make God obligated to you. Come to him as a child and he will answer you as his loving heavenly father. So lesson one, pray to the Lord. Rest in his wisdom and his provision for you. The Israelites didn't do this and it got them into a predicament. The Israelites now have to live with the consequences of their actions. They have made a mistake. They have, you know, you, they could look at the situation and say, well, we've completely messed up because God told us to go into the land of Canaan and, and destroy everybody. And we have made a treaty with these people and we can't do that now. So they've got to learn how do we live with the consequences of this action? Do they just throw up their hands and give up? Or do they figure out how they can be faithful moving forward? And of course, that's what we and they, that's what they did. That's what we need to do. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We all do things that are wrong. And we can fall into a trap of saying, it's all over. I give up. I mean, what's the point anymore? No, the proper response is, yes, there's consequences to our sins. How can we be faithful even with the consequences of our sin? One example that I, <clears throat> that I thought of when I was thinking about this was a young woman uh, in another church that I know. Uh, <clears throat> she went off to college, and in her first year she got pregnant. And <clears throat> she was deeply sorrowful for what she did. She actually came to the elders of the church and confessed, and re confessed her sins and repented of her sins uh, public, rather publicly. And she sought to be faithful from that mo mo uh, moment onward. You know, she had the child. She actually got married to the young man. And that marriage was terrible. It didn't work out. The young man was not faithful to the Lord. And, and it ended. But she remained faithful to God. She went and finally got her degree. That little boy grew up. And now he has a family of his own. And they're all walking with the Lord and trusting in the Lord. There was negative consequences to her actions, but she went forward. How do I deal with this, these consequences, and, and continue to be faithful to the Lord in spite of that? That's what the Israelites did here, and they were blessed for it. They were faithful to the Lord in spite of their mistake, and they went forward to be the people they were supposed to be in the promised land. Now they had the Gibeonites along with them for the ride, and that's a blessing to the Gibeonites. Well, let's look at them for a moment. Well, that was the second lesson. You know, living with the consequences of your actions doesn't mean that you're rejected by God. You know, God gives you those things, but it's a reminder of his faithfulness, a reminder, you know, of your mistake and a, and a, and a humbling thing for you. But what, walking forward is what's called for. Continue to trust in the Lord. 
He allowed the Israelites to learn a lesson from it. And he had the Gibeonites fetching water and chopping wood at the temple. They saw him all the time there with them. And they could remember, we need, to, we need to inquire of the Lord before we make stupid decisions. Well, the Gibeonites. We have these Gibeonites who are very clever and they deceive the people of Israel. They only lived, well, they were 16 miles away from where Joshua was. And even they were more close to Jerusalem. They're like six miles from Jerusalem. And uh, Joshua and the Israelites are 16 miles away from, from, the Gibeon, from, from Gibeah. And uh, so they lie. They deceive Israel. They're just doing whatever it takes to stay alive. They don't have true faith at this point. They're, they've heard of what, the, what, the, what God is doing, and they're quaking in their boots. If you look at the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, uh, it talks about the greatness of the city of, of Gibeah and that all the men were warriors. And yet here they are cowering before the God of Israel, fearing for their lives and doing whatever it takes very cleverly to save their lives. And they're successful at it. A couple of verses popped into my head, and they're very difficult verses to interpret because they can be taken different ways, and there's a lot of ink spilled about uh, what these verses actually mean <clears throat> from the New Testament, from the words of Jesus. Jesus said uh, in Luke 16, 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. You can take that a couple of different ways. There's another passage that's similar, Matthew 11:12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now these verses either refer to um, the zeal necessary for entering the kingdom of God. It's a serious matter, the kingdom of God, and it should be taken seriously. Or it, it could be in a negative sense depicting the hostile powers that are against the kingdom of God. Either way, it's a serious matter being part of the kingdom of God. There is no greater question, really. Are you a part of the kingdom of God or not? The Gibeonites are kind of an example of that. They're doing whatever it takes to live. And they end up becoming a part of Israel. Through their, yes, through their deception, it's not through faith, but you see the point. They're, they're doing whatever they can. Clever ruse, very clever, with all the looks of a long journey. They don't mention Jericho or Ai, which is really what scared them. They mention battles from long ago. Because if they had mentioned Jericho and Ai, they knew, well, how'd you hear about that if you came from a far distance? So they're very clever in their ruse, and it works out for them. One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, wrote a, wrote a book, or had some sermons that were turned into a book. And uh, the title, he was writing these New Testament verses that I quoted to you. The title of the book was, Heaven Taken by Storm. Showing the holy violence a Christian is to put forth in the pursuit after glory. And I commend any Thomas Watson writing to you. It's great stuff. Well, in a way, the Gibeonites took heaven by storm. They became part of the kingdom of God. 
Now fast forward. Fast forward to the days of David, King David. 2 Samuel 21, this is at the, the end of Samuel, and it's a bit of a prologue to the book. It says, Now therefore, now there was a famine, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. This is hundreds, hundreds of years later. Everybody's forgotten who the Gibeonites even are. And Saul is going to try to wipe them out. It tells us uh, that, the, that the people of Israel, even though the people of Israel has sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Saul didn't remember the covenant that, that the Israelites had made with the Gibeonites. And he was forming a purge. Those lands that the Gibeonites occupied were part of the, became part of the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Saul was from. He was a, a Benjaminite. And so Saul's trying to wipe them out. Everybody in Israel forgot about the Gibeonites, but God did not. God remembered the covenant that was made with the Gibeonites, and he protected the Gibeonites. In fact, seven of Saul's descendants are put to death because of this. There's a famine in the days of David because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. God takes it seriously. If you look at 2 Samuel 4, now the, the, the events that, that they're referring to aren't recorded for us in Scripture. We just have a hint at it in 2 Samuel 4, verse 3. Uh, the Berethites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. If you look at chapter, uh, verse 1, Beeroth is one of the cities of the Gibeonites. And they had to flee from Saul because Saul was trying to put them to death. Well, God remembers his covenant with the people of Gibeah. Uh, fast forward again to after the exile. You know, God has brought punishment upon the people of Israel, people of Judah and Jerusalem, the Babylonians, bring them to exile. The Babylonians are eventually, after seven years or so, conquered by the Persians. Nehemiah is sent back to the Promised Land to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And in the, in the, in the uh, book of Nehemiah, where it talks about who rebuilt the wall and who rebuilt which sections, we read this. Nehemiah 3, 6. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. This occurs over and over and over again in these chapters. As it, talks, it goes all the way around Jerusalem, talks about who repaired the walls. It goes on. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite. I just love that. Melatiah the Gibeonite. Even after the exile, after the people of God have been dispersed, God brings back his people, and here's a Gibeonite, still with the Lord. And this, his name, Melatiah, is a Hebrew name, and it means Yahweh delivered. Isn't that beautiful? Yahweh delivered. He delivered the Gibeonites in spite of their sinfulness and deception. 
He brought them into the people of God. And it's just a testimony to anybody here who doesn't know the Lord. And you may think you're far away from the Lord. But you're like the Gibeonites. Your head is on the chopping block. You're under judgment. But if you come and make that covenant with the Lord, come into a relationship with Him, Yahweh will deliver you. God will deliver you as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in spite of our faithlessness. We pray, Lord, that we would renew our covenant with you every day and walk with you. And when we fall, we pray, Lord, that, that we would pick ourselves up and repent and keep moving forward, even with the consequences of our actions. Thank you, Lord, that you will be faithful to us to get us to the end. And Lord, I pray for any who are Gibeonites, so to speak, here today, that they would take heaven by storm, do whatever it takes to see your deliverance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.